Hello and welcome to the Friday, November 9th, 2018 edition of the Sands and its Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich and today I'm recording from Jacksonville, Florida. Cisco released a number of security bulletins these last two days and among all the bulletins released there are sort of five that stick out, four of which are rated critical and one informational. Well, uh, let's start with the informational one. The informational one is in so far interesting in that it's pretty embarrassing, but not really all that severe. It affects the Cisco Telepresence video communication server. And apparently what happened here is that some test script from testing, debugging the software were left behind on the shipped version of the product. Now, this wouldn't be quite as bad, but part of of these test scripts are actually exploits. For example, a Cisco internally developed exploit for the dirty cow vulnerability. Dirty Cow was a privilege escalation vulnerability that affected Linux. Now, Cisco essentially states that, and that makes actually some sense, that they're using these exploits to make sure that released software and hardware isn't vulnerable to any of these exploits. But then again, not removing these test scripts does show some lack of control in actually releasing the software. Now, by just sitting there on the system, uh, these exploits don't really do much damage. An attacker would still have to gain access to the system to take advantage of these exploits. And at that point, they may be able to just upload the exploits to the system. Now, among the critical bulletins, we have one that covers a number of different Cisco products that all use Struts 2.5. Remember, we just had this file upload vulnerability in Struts 2.5. And of course, any product using Struts 2.5 is affected here. And you'll probably see similar announcements from other vendors as well. The second critical vulnerability affects Cisco Stealth Watch Management Console, and it's an HTTP authentication bypass so a crafted HTTP request will bypass authentication. Now critical vulnerability number three and that's for the Cisco small business switches. It's actually one of those backdoor debug accounts that apparently was left behind and may enable itself without actually notifying the administrator. CDNet considers this the seventh such backdoor that Cisco patched so far this year. Lastly, we have the fourth critical vulnerability in Cisco Unity Express. That's an arbitrary command execution due to a Java deserialization vulnerability. I've mentioned plenty of them in the past, and that's probably here the least embarrassing vulnerability. Now, the reason I call deserialization vulnerabilities the least embarrassing type of vulnerability here is because only recently we really started paying attention to them and I don't think they're really quite well understood by most. There is a lot of attention being paid to Java, some to .NET, but other object-oriented languages are potentially vulnerable as well. And there's a real neat blog post by Luke Janke about how to exploit these vulnerabilities in Ruby 2. Now, just like in Java, what you need is the right gadget chain in order to take advantage of these vulnerabilities. And 
uh, he's sort of presenting an interesting gadget chain that really only uses standard uh, libraries that come with Ruby 2. So if you're interested in learning more about decentralization vulnerabilities, that's probably a great blog to read over the weekend. And talking about reading material for the weekend, the latest Ouch newsletter was released by the Sans Securing the Human Project. This time it's about signs that you are hacked. Now, again, these newsletters are targeting less technical readers than what we usually have here listening to the podcast. So while you're reading up on Ruby deserialization, have the family take a look at whether or not they are are hacked. I was helping a little bit editing this particular newsletter and there's a real uh, fine balance here that you have to find here between being paranoid and being too careless. Sometimes, well, it's just a bug and even for an expert, it can be very difficult to decide if it's actually something that's caused by your system being compromised or something that's being caused just by buggy software. And well, I haven't done it now for a couple of months, but today we have another SDI student here for the Friday podcast. I have with me today, Jonathan Sweeney. Jonathan, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Sure, of course. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Sweeney. I um, am an instant responder. I uh, am also currently an SDI student with the Science Technology Institute, working on my last research uh, paper and presentation. Uh, to, to complete that degree. So a little bit about myself. I got into computer security a little bit by accident while working a computer support job and uh, a virus infection happened at the university where I worked and so uh, that exposed me to computer security and uh, from there I finished my computer science degree and, and started working as an incident responder at Indiana University and, um, and through that experience got a lot of opportunities to learn on-the-job training and take some SANS classes and stuff. And so that's brought me to where I am today, uh, not only as an instant responder, but as an STI student. Yeah, I actually find that in particular in the educational realm, there usually is some quite capable security people because you don't necessarily sort of have the policy protections and such that you have sort of in a in a more commercial environment. or Yeah, that's exactly correct. You know, uh, at university, we, we say they have uh, short fences and fat pipes because we, you know, we do have, uh, you know, good IT security teams, uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, the way the low fences are with academic freedom, we have to leave things pretty open for people to do research and, and to do, um, you know, to do, do their work and stuff. So uh, there aren't as many protections in place generally uh, for some, some of those reasons. And so we do have tons of, you know, incidents and, and attacks and things, you know, everything from, you know, someone trying to, uh, you know, hack in from a different country just to get another bot to their botnet. Um, to, you know, we had a lot of uh, copyright infringement uh, incidents. And then also stuff like every semester there was someone who'd say, hey, my boyfriend logged into my account, dropped all my classes um, because we broke up last week and I didn't think he'd remember the password I told him last year. <laughs> so we get everything. Yeah. When I was there, we had uh, in my team about 10,000 incidents every year that we'd handle. Wow, that's quite a bit. Now, with your paper, uh, you actually tackled a very hot topic here, blockchain, but you took a little bit of a different spin on it. Or, and, and we're actually going to talk here about two papers of yours. So we are sort of discussing them as one. Can you just introduce a little bit uh, what these papers were about? And 
Sure, yeah, of course. Uh, so, so my research was about using blockchains as a botnet command and control channel. And the way I chose this topic is, uh, you know, I was thinking about what topic to write about. I uh, happened to be uh, working in Intrusion and talked to a uh, gentleman who was deployed along with me about some different ideas, you know, even things along the line like if I ran a botnet, how would I do it? Um, and he had the idea of, of private blockchains and how that would be uh, different than a public blockchain uh, like Bitcoin. Um, so I could talk about the difference of those each for a minute if you'd like. Yeah, actually, tell us a little bit about private blockchains. What's that about? And yeah, so a, a public blockchain like Bitcoin, you have every single transaction viewable for anyone to look at and see and get a copy of the whole uh, ledger and all the transactions. Uh, but a private blockchain uh, is private in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, you can just have two computers in your basement and create your own blockchain that's stored on only those two and that no one else uh, ha you know, has any processing on or any nodes or any transactions of no knowledge of even. Um, the other thing that the private blockchains add, um, in addition to, to, to that, is that you actually can't have access uh, control and restrictions on, on stuff. So even if people know about it, they still can't connect to it. But isn't then also sort of one of the properties that you use the distributed nature of these blockchains or to sort of make it more difficult uh, to take down, for example, a botnet if you would use them to control a botnet? Precisely, yeah. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin's been around since uh, pretty much a decade now, almost exactly uh, 10 years. And so, um, you know, people, even when it was just uh, four or five years old, started looking at using that uh Bitcoin specifically, that blockchain as a command and control channel for a botnet because of its distributed uh, nature and also its resiliency, right? So no one's taken uh, things, data out of a blockchain. And it's also very distributed across thousands of computers. So, so it's very difficult to take down that uh, data, especially in, in the case where we're talking about using it as a command and control channel for a botnet to tell the bots what to do. Now, which uh, blockchain technology do you exactly use here for your proposed uh, botnet command control? Yes, yeah, so I looked at using uh, the most popular private blockchain, which is Ethereum. And so, again, with this private blockchain, um, you, you can have that, that uh, you know, command and control communication happening that way. Um, but because it's private, not everybody can see those, those, um, those transactions, those messages, those instructions to the bots. Um, and so, uh, my paper was the first one that looked at using a private blockchain as a botnet command and control channel. And then you can also encrypt the command control traffic or with Ethereum. Uh, sure. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, you know, all the communication between the different nodes is encrypted by default and is signed uh, by the private keys of those nodes. Now, if uh, a defender would get a hold of one of these nodes, uh, what kind of keys could they recover from that node in order to decrypt some of the traffic? Yeah, so there's a couple different keys that are used. Uh, some are just for the nodes to communicate with each other. Um, also, if the attacker had happened to be uh, administering the botnet from that node, there'd be also the private keys of the smart contract. I haven't introduced the concept of smart contract yet, so I'll talk about that for a second. Um, the way that you use a private blockchain for your command and control communication uh, would be with what's called a smart contract, and that is uh, variables and code functions Uh, that live on the blockchain, but can be managed uh, by the person who creates that contract. He can have functions, for example, to query, uh, you know, the IP address of the C2 server, query what instructions the bot should be performing right now, and, and um, you can have a, a version uh, ID number for the bots. 
Uh, those not only can be queried by the bots, but they can be updated uh, by the bot herder uh, through update functions. And the, that's really weird because most uh, blockchains are not modifiable. Um, and so it's, it's peculiar with the smart contract to have these variables that you can change. In your second paper, so the second half of your work, uh, you were also talking about how to actually then take down these botnets and uh, not to give anybody any ideas. We don't only have the paper on how to create them, we also have the paper and how to take them down. So anything you came up with there? Yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, starting to talk about how, so when the, the bot herder has his, uh, his private key that manages that smart contract, he might leave a copy of that behind on any of the nodes that he's using to administer the botnet. And so if that private key is obtained by a network defender or a security researcher or by law enforcement, they could use that private key uh, theoretically to take over that smart contract, to change those variables or uh, neuter the bots or, or send the bots different instructions to uh, dismantle the botnet. That's just w one example. So this would actually be a little bit easier than having to get court orders for a domain registrar to redirect domains and sort of control and take down botnets that way. Or do you think it's about the same effort uh, that's necessary? Yeah, I would estimate it's probably the same effort. A court order would still be needed for law enforcement to perform a step like that mm -hmm. um, because of, of, of the nature of the activity. So they would essentially then get some level of remote control over these infected systems similar to them taking over a website on RSE channel that's sort of more traditionally used uh, for command control. That's correct. It gives them pretty much the same access as far as administering and taking ownership of the botnet, uh, again, with the end purpose of dismantling it. Now, have you seen anything along these lines uh, sort of in the wild yet? Or do you think uh, the bad guys are actually actively working on this? Are they really not so far happy with what they have and haven't really had the need to to do anything uh, with blockchains yet? No, that's a really good question. Uh, we haven't seen too many botnets uh, using a bit, uh, block blockchains at all, uh, let alone private blockchains. And so I, I was doing this research more as a forward thinking, uh, you know, to prepare us network defenders for what we might expect in the future and how we might target that to, to dismantle that botnet. So, so we have not seen this in the wild and, and I don't expect it to happen for another year or two at least uh, because it is such a new and emerging field. Um, and also because, uh, like you hinted at, a lot of botnet uh, bot herders these days uh, are satisfied with, with what they're doing and, and, and they don't seem to be looking for changing that. Mm. Could it be that just nobody's looking for it? Like as a defender looking at my network traffic, uh, are there any telltale signs that someone would use this type of a botnet? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so for example, with Ethereum, which is what I researched, uh, it, it typically communicates on port 30303 on UDP and TCP. So you could look, for example, for those uh, ports being used and, and that would help you identify either someone using Ethereum to you know mine uh cryptocurrency or, or also a botnet communicating. Uh, on a lot of networks, uh, particularly those that our audience is listening, uh, you know, maybe monitoring would, would be, uh, you know, enterprise networks, their companies, uh, they probably wouldn't expect to see cryptocurrency mining going on. And so they could uh, definitely flag that sort of activity as suspicious. And I guess looking for miners should be sort of a standard uh, network security activity these days because that's what's happening a lot of the times with infected machines that are then being used as a cryptocurrency miner, whether Ethereum or, or other coins. Yeah, Monero and others. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. Would, would they also see a high CPU load in these machines? 
You know, you wouldn't. Um, so, as a matter of fact, in my first paper, I wrote about how the on a private contract, or sorry, a private blockchain, because you control the whole blockchain, you can actually set the mining difficulty. And so, uh, I in my paper outlined how to do that and how to minimize the mining difficulty so the blocks are uh, very trivial to mine, and so there's no high CPU load at all. Yeah, so not really like Bitcoin on Monero, so you're looking just at the CPU load and find the miners that way. That's too bad in some ways, I guess. Uh, we were talking just a minute ago about the mining, and it reminded me of something that uh, with uh, you know Bitcoin, I believe a new block is mined every 12 minutes, and that might not be often enough for a bot herder to send instructions out to his bots. Uh, but with private blockchain, and particularly with Ethereum, uh, bots are mined much faster within just a few seconds every block. Uh, could be mined so those instructions can get out much quicker that's a good point and uh, thanks for bringing this up because i think this also makes these private blockchains scale better than for example big public blockchains like uh, bitcoin for botnet control well and this is it for today so thanks again for listening i will add links to johnny's paper in the show notes Uh, thanks and talk to you again on monday bye